Welcome to Reimagine the Contact Center. I'm your host, Mark Bernstein, and my guest today is Diane Maggers, founder and chief experience officer and experience catalysts. Hey, Diane. I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Good. Good okay. to see you. you oh, yeah. Doing doing just great. Um, you want me to put on a filter or anything? On my no, phone? please. Oh. Your background is fantastic. Thank you. I remodeled my office while I was home. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> horrible, horrible yellow color and blue is my signature color. So I'm like, I'm just going to put a new one. Uh, Diane, me too on both fronts. Um, <laughs> I This is all... Since the pandemic, set up the bookshelf, got the painting, uh, put the piano out here. Um, this used to be almost like a, a second living room that we never used. And I was like, let's turn this into something we really love. Nice. Um, and nice. uh, I, I would love to put blue everywhere I can afford to put blue. Yeah, it was, not, it was hard to get the right shade of blue, too. You can see on this side, there's, mm -hmm. it's only the accent wall. This, this is a round, most of it is a round room. So it's hard to have a corner, but this accent wall, oh, we decided, and then we have kind of a prairie stage. I don't know what, what you call it. I want that job, by the way. I want to be able to name paints and nail polish in my next, my next career. I, I used to love the color periwinkle just because it was named periwinkle. <laughs> right, right. right. It's just, it just says so much. And I even like the uh, prairie sage like that's the color we chose but that tells you in your mind it tells you what that color really is because you have an idea of what it looks like yeah i imagine yeah. there's so much thought that goes into that too where um th there has to be like it's either it's either one person who names a thousand colors a day um or it has to be like a writer's room where they put up the color and it's like i, I think it has to be like a writer's room with by consensus because otherwise you know one person names the color and you're like that's not it but i guess there's also a limit to you know how much time you can spend doing that yeah and i think about the the color uh the paint colors are different than nail polish so nail polish because it has a bigger spectrum and there's sparkles and there's all these things that would be i think more fun because you've got a wider range of you know bubble gum nobody's going to paint their walls bubble gum well very mm -hmm. few maybe but yeah <laughs> i've got more options uh, my fiance uh, loves doing her nails, absolutely loves it. And she uh, uh, gets these, uh, they're like, um, uh, like paste on nails, yeah. um, but it's real nail polish um, uh, from this company called Color Street. And, um, and they all have funny names. So one of the, and they'd all be in their nail group together, like on Facebook. And one of the exercises they'll do is uh, get your husband's fiance's significant others to guess the name. So we all come up with these crazy names like, you know, uh, Midnight in Paris. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. See, exactly. People love to be creative and it's such an easy way to do it. So that, that's what I want. There's two things I want to do. I want to do that or I want to be chief customer officer for like the like Patagonia or the American Cancer Society. Um, some nonprofit that has a huge purpose that I'm passionate about. So eventually we'll see yeah. how that turns out. Um, what, a, what an awesome goal and what an awesome, what a, what a clear goal. Yeah. I'm really excited for it. I haven't made it come to life yet. And I, the other part of me though, is like, do I really want to go back to a brand? I've been on my own for so long that, you know, don't really go. But if it serves that purpose, I'd also do that. 
probably talking about the psychology piece. So <laughs> my specialty was in death and dying. I know that seems really strange for a 23 year old college kid, but um, so the hospice organization, I did training for them for their volunteers when I was in college and I would love to close that circle literally um, and go back and work for them again. Yeah. That, that is so um, admirable. Um, I'll talk about my fiance again. I can't get enough of her. She's a, a music therapist at Children's Hospital um, right down the street from us and works with kids uh, who have like long-term debilitating illness, illnesses and, you know, cancer and terrible diagnoses. Um, yeah. And just, you know, the perspective that she has gotten in, first of all, what happens when you can heal a kid? Like, what does that mean when there's a life that is continuing that previously, you know, might not have? And then the reverse of, you know, when, when you see like someone's timeline collapsed like that, um, it, it gives you a really, really unique perspective. So anyway, we would love to hear like a little bit about like your, your time in hospice psychology and some of the things you learned there. And it, I came about it um, organically. So I went, I went away to college and I was there for just a few months and my father got sick with, with uh, lung cancer. He was a fireman, a smoker. He refinished furniture and a painter. So he didn't give his lungs a chance. And this is way back. Um, so I came back to a college that was close to home and I just became fascinated with the process that we went through knowing he was terminal and I watched other hospice and I saw other patients go through it. And this, this sense that um, nobody on their deathbed ever talks about the fact that they wish they'd worked more. Um, they don't talk about the possessions they own. They talked about how people made them feel and how they wanted to spend more time and really that human human connection. And so that was what attracted me to that was helping, helping families um, kind of with the unfinished business of saying those things they hadn't said. Um, so that's, that's how I came into that profession, but it, it truly launched, I think for me, not only my own interpersonal relationships with people where I, I help them, I try to create those memories. I try to really talk about the deep things that matter to us rather than high level health of weather, um, because I think that's really what makes life rich. Um, and so that's been part of my education to your point earlier about how do you carry that forward to becoming a customer experience professional? Like, where does that fit? Um, and yeah. that's just, that's part of it is making sure people see it's not a business, it's humans and how you need to make sure that that, um, that emotion that they're carrying is part of your brand. Mm. Yeah. One of the uh, interesting things about that, Diane, is you're, I heard you talk about deep relationships and uh, you know focusing on that. But what's interesting is you obviously need two parties to do that. It's hard to have a one-way deep conversation. Um, <laughs> sure. So how do you? How does one pull that out um, of others? Should you try to pull it out of others? And um, is there? You know, what's the? How do you gauge the balance between respecting what someone wants to share and what someone doesn't want to share? And I promise we'll take this to CX shortly. <laughs> but I, I think you you can see. Uh, the, the relationship there. Absolutely. I, I think we can take it directly to customer experience in some ways, but I think your question is, you know, we think about, I remember telling my daughter this, she was all nervous about going to the dance because she was scared of what people would think of her. And I said, you know what? You should just think about the fact that everybody else is thinking the same thing. So, so nobody's thinking about you, they're thinking about themselves. And part of what we love to do for ourselves, we just talked about introspection in this stage of COVID, 
was um, people want to be able to explore themselves through others, like seeing themselves through others' eyes. So starting conversations around, you know, you know, I saw you were um, going to the specific concert, like where did you get attached to that music or why do you have a piano in your room? Like people love to be able to talk about and share because it helps them explore. And that creates these emotional bonds with people that are, as I said, way beyond the how was the weather today. Sure, you're gonna have high level conversations with acquaintances, um, but those friends I think you can think about and the audience can think about, the friends that you have are the ones that if you don't see them for three months, you can walk in the room and go into a deep conversation, no problem. And you can talk about things that you couldn't talk about with anybody else. So that is what creates to me those relationships of shared values, shared information, shared feelings, emotions, all, all those pieces and, and helping, helping others to recognize that and what you can do to help reflect back to them. Um, if they're in a struggle of what do I do or giving them feedback that it's hard for anybody else to give them that because you're close, you can do that and help them, help them improve. So now just to, to customer experience, that's the same thing we think about. One of the things that um, we think about with customer experience is we talk about getting the voice of customer all the time. Well, I kind of stopped saying that because I, I started talking about a conversation strategy. Um, mm -hmm. Many times we're getting information from customers on surveys or looking at social media, but we need to start thinking more about the community and how we're not only asking about what we want to know, but being open with what do you want to tell us? And if they give us a response, we need to be responding back and really engaging that customer in a way that makes sense. Um, I don't know how many surveys you filled out. I've filled out a lot and I've had two companies come back to me with responses to my issues or my feedback. That's not a, that's a one-way street. And you know how long a marriage would last with a one-way street, right? Yeah. I, I've gotten a sense. <laughs> um, Diane, so you made me think about a survey that I filled out um, where I actually filled out the survey and get a response and then I wrote a note to the CEO um, and you know, the, the company was a big company, but not so big that there's no way a CEO would ever get back to the customer, which I don't even think we should go there because then you should always get back to the customer. But um, I wrote a note to the CEO and uh, he said, hey, let me uh, uh, sync you up with our director of sales to talk about uh, keeping your agreement. And it was like, that is not what I was going for. You see, the, you see the approach there, the psychology of that, of it's about their goals. It's about, it's about them, not you. Um, and I remember the very first CEO who actually got me into this space. Um, he, when he walked in the room, it was not about him walking in the room. It was about um, him coming up to you and asking you about your day and where you were. It was, it was so much not about his ego or anything else. And he was well-respected, did phenomenal work. And, and he's the one who said the same thing about customers. We're not gonna do anything, we're not gonna do anything. We're, we're going to respond to what the customers need us to do to be successful in their business. And that cascades back to our business. And I remember that to this day about him talking about that, but he said, it's not, a, when you walk in a room, it's not about you, it's about the person that you're, you're going to go have a conversation with. Yeah. I've, I've always remembered that. That's uh, it's one of the things that Dale Carnegie says, um, you know, his, his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, I recommend it all the time. And you hear the title and you go, ugh, win friends, influence people? Is this like, you know, a Machiavelli 2.0? Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, you know, I, I usually clarify like, no, no, no. The book was written in the 1930s and that's just like the linguistic style at the time. What he's trying to say is how to like build a, uh, a network of relationships of people that, that trust you and that you trust and that's meaningful and uh, be able to communicate your ideas in a way that, that people can receive it. Um, and that concept of you focus um, you know, the company, uh, Balto, we have uh, 10 principles of communication. And the first one is you focused. Um, I think it makes such a big difference in the receptiveness of the other person you're communicating with. It does. And, and I love that you have that um, trust factor brought in because that, that to me is one of the um, pieces of experience that we talk about, but I don't think we talk about it enough. Um, I've seen it rise up in the last year because of, you know, how people, how companies responded to the pandemic either eroded or increased the trust that, that customers had with them. And the trust really comes down to, if I, were, I go to Starbucks a lot, I hate to admit it, but I do. I pay $5 for a cup of coffee every time I go, what am I doing? Uh, but the reason that I go there and the reason that um, I can, they can have an issue and get my drink wrong is that I trust them enough because they've established a relationship with me where it's been a fair exchange of value. Um, they get my right, they use my name, they always ask me how I'm doing. Um, that establishes trust for me. So I'm more willing to overlook an, an issue, kind of like a bank account, um, if, um, they're, if I've established that trust with them. So that's where brands I think are kind of failing to really ensure that that conversation keeps going and that even if they're a brand that's not visible in, in your head, the mind share, that they know the minute that your brand comes to their mind, that there's a, definitely a trust and feeling of that. I have a relationship with that brand. Uh, and I don't think we spend enough time really thinking about that when they're not interacting with us. I agree. Think about, think about the touch points and the journey and all that, but we're all living our lives and we touch hundreds of brands every day. So who's going to make the difference and who am I going to feel connected to. Diane, one of the things when I was reading through uh, your bio beforehand is you were talking about um, helping companies uh, make the most of the opportunities in their customer interactions. You know, what sort of opportunities do you see that maybe didn't exist five years ago? Or, and what sort of opportunities do you see that, that you, you almost want to shake people and say, hey, this is a real <laughs> opportunity interactions. You should be focusing here. I'll give you a really example that's happening right now. So I'm working with this wonderful progressive nonprofit. It's a hundred person company and they do certifications for professionals. And one of the things that they've come to realize is that while they're a certification company, they're actually a community company. And what that means is that these professionals um, have very few support systems in place that really help them grow as a professional or help them connect to other professionals. So a certification is something everybody has in common um, or most people have in common when they're in that profession. And the ability for them to look at um, how can we provide keeping their skills up to state? How can we provide, hey, I ran into a situation and I needed to do something or I'm looking for my next career. The ability for them to see that and see the opportunity um, and build their brand toward that was just a gap. There was a need that wasn't filled. And so they'd come to realize that that is more of their trajectory than just doing the certifications. Like they could, they could run their business all day long um, doing that, but 
they're ripe for disruption because they haven't created a community. We've got lots of things going on that are detracting them from engaging those, those customers. So that's a prime example of when you just need to be looking for the opportunities beyond what you think you're doing and what value you're really providing to the customer. I love that. And, you know, we think a lot and talk a lot about, you know, mobilizing your brand advocates and, you know, mobilizing your brand champions. And we talk about it on an individual level, like there's a person you want to go mobilize. But I don't think we talk a lot about how you can mobilize a community and with the emphasis on the interactions that those people have with each other. You know, mm-hmm. what sort of opportunities do you see there? Oh, well, I can give you an example of um, when I was with the CXPA, one of the things that we did in, in our events is we had open, open door time, which meant if you had a, an expert in a certain field, you could schedule time to meet with them. So this ability to actually connect people with each other is part of the recognition that that's part of our brand is that, hey, we're, we're kind of like the 900 number for, for CX, right? You call us. If you're looking for a role, if you're looking for an expert in a certain place, we can help guide you there. So it's not really a service that we offer, but what we're really doing is connecting those people to a need that they have um, and giving them the right person to go talk to with a with specific target of making sure they get the value they're looking for. Has that gotten more complicated or, or harder to do? I hmm. I would say there's two things to that. Easier from a technology standpoint of we have the data, we have all those things that we can make happen. But I think if you lose sight of that human connection and you have that conversation around, you can tell me in a questionnaire what kind of expert you're looking for. But I can tell you in a 15 minute conversation, I can dig in and say, you know, you probably really don't want that, but you may want to talk to this person because they have a bit broader view of problem you're having. And I think they'd be great for you. You can't get that from filling out a survey or a questionnaire. So I think technology has enabled that where we're able to track and manage and gather the information, but we certainly can't replace that. Hey, I've got somebody I think you should meet. Mm-hmm. And that kind of makes me think of you know the concept of um, that there's been a historical focus on uh, trying to extract information from your customer through surveys, through NPS, through voice of the customer, through speech analytics. And that's absolutely valuable. Um, But there hasn't been a lot of focus of pushing something back to the customer or sending the customer off into the world with something that they didn't have before. Um, And I think that when we think about the contact center as a profit center and that trend that that very much appears to be emerging right now, it can't just be that one-way exchange. You need to kind of send them back with something. Does that make sense at all? Yes, and you will find a lot of information around the value creation story now. There's actually a value creation journal. And um, that's what, that's this community that we've created around that. Its whole concept is the fact that you are, your purpose is to create value for that customer. What's on their scorecard? What are their unmet needs? How do you know you're helping them to do that? So absolutely, especially in a care center, because people are coming to you, and this is a passion of mine, as you can tell, people are coming to you in an already altered state. What I mean by that is they're typically having a problem, they're anxious about something, they've got a concern, um, they're deeply impacted. Think about a life insurance policy you have to call and get activated, right? 
um, they're coming to you already in an emotional state. And so if we don't deal with that and also not only resolve their issue, but care for that experience and then give them other things to go do that will help create more value. Example of that is a life insurance company when there was a death in the family um, and somebody was coming, coming back and calling about the life insurance policy, they had a publication and they would send out via email, text, whatever, that talked about the things to consider when a loved one dies, things you probably wouldn't think about, like bank accounts and a trust or, hey, you're gonna have to change or here's who to call for whatever. That's value to me, that's creating value. Yes, I can functionally get that done, but what's the and behind it? So I love the word and because it's, yes, I solved your problem and I was able to do this for you. So that's the end you're talking about. Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a tricky balance there. Um, you know, of course, the historical focus has been handle time, hold time, first call resolution. Um, and there's, you know, the contact center will need to continue to uh, pay a lot of attention to costs and, you know, managing costs. Um, but at the same time, it seems like now folks are saying, oh, but if you want to make the call 30 seconds longer in order to provide value, that's okay. Um, so, you know, what, what sort of, how should expectations change? for um, how the agent is supposed to interact with the customer. And, and then you know, similarly, how should we change um, how agents are evaluated in order to, to, to match those expectations? So I'm gonna give you an example of that. That may not be exactly what you're asking, but I think it will stimulate the, the audience's thinking. So I'm gonna give you an example of NPS because NPS is used sometimes in contact center, but for a lot of companies. And I'm not knocking it because it gets a good barometer, but the question needs to be different. The question about Net Promoter is, we're asking the customer how likely are they, they to recommend us? And the real question that you wanna be asking is, well, do they actually recommend us? And why do they recommend us? Because if you look at uh, those customers who come to you through referrals, they are lower cost of acquisition. They're more likely to recommend others too. They stay longer, they're less price sensitive. So by creating that relationship with them and the ability to have an advocate and have a conversation and really create that deep engagement is going to drive that behavior, which then turns into those people coming in. So I think from the perspective of when you're talking about a care center, I would say that we've seen a huge shift in how they begin to think about it and not necessarily about um, that value because those conversations can actually expose opportunities to either serve the customer or to provide a cross-sell or upsell opportunity. Um, and I say that in the end only because yes, there's value to that for the organization, but the conversation and helping the customer understand their needs better back to our point at the beginning um, builds that relationship. And they, they then in fact will go out and more likely to recommend you, more likely to tell their friends. So we have to look at the entire value chain of, it's not just about that conversation, it's the resulting emotion and the resulting behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I'm almost imagining um, two different QA scorecards based on that. You know, the one is the, what you might call traditional, uh, did you uh, offer a warm greeting to the customer? Uh, were you polite and respectful? Did you assure the customer that you would help them? 
did you uh, confirm that you understood the customer's issue before moving to a resolution? Like that's kind of, you would say maybe QA scorecard part one. And the QA scorecard I'm imagining that you're crafting is, um, did you uncover opportunities to provide more value for the customer? Did you provide a value to the customer that they weren't expecting? Um, you know, what do you think that QA scorecard V.2 looks like? Um, like, how do you operationalize that? I think it's a combination. I mean, anything, anything else that's gone through a transformation is a little bit of the, the, the pendulum swing a little bit or the teeter-totter, I call it, of we have to let go of some of those things. Like when's the last time you saw average, um, average handle time? I think it's an important um, measure, but, but so what? Like I could have a quick conversation with someone where they were totally ticked off and left and went out and told 20 of their friends. I could have a long conversation the same thing happens. So, or vice versa. So I don't know what it really tells you other than to manage, again, it's from the perspective of the company. It's what the company wants, not really the customer. The customer may want you to stay on the phone longer because they don't feel like they've got their issue resolved or they're looking for more information. You know, think about somebody who's, who is implementing a life insurance policy. Um, there's a lot of things they probably want to ask and you're the right company to go to. And if you're there in a time of need, you better believe that they'll be back. And they'll tell their friends, you know, this company that did it. There's a friend of mine who did that when his father died, he went into three banks that each had a part of his dad's account. And one bank immediately tried to sell him, said, oh, you can just consolidate all of your things here. We have this great product. The second one, um, it took about 10 minutes for somebody to even come and find them in the lobby, even though they told somebody that that's why they were there. And the third was um, empathetic. I'm so sorry about your loss. Come in, have a seat. Let's just chat about your dad a little bit. I'd love to hear his life story. And then we'll get to the business part. I mean, completely different experiences. Guess who has his money today? The bank that was empathetic because he felt like they cared for him and he transferred everything over to that one bank rather than leaving it where it was because of the experience that he had. So when we think about those touch points, we need to see them in the bigger picture. How do you think customer expectations are changing? Because I'm thinking about empathy there as one of the key factors and I'm almost torn on it. You know, on one hand in the CX world, you know, we just are pounding the empathy drum saying it's so important. And, and I think it probably is. Uh, but on their hand, I can imagine that the, you know, modern customer doesn't care as much and they just say, I want the answer and I want to go. So I wonder, you know, what are you noticing? How do you see customer expectations changing and what they want when they are talking to a customer care center? I think that is actually part of, I remember, um, I cannot remember the name because they got acquired by somebody, but when, when they came, when the customer came in, they were using the emotional sentiment score to direct those calls from uh, what would have been the, the agent that got it to another agent. So the profiling of this is a person who maybe it's an older person who is a little bit harder hearing, who doesn't really keep up as much, you know, they're not as, they're not as savvy, um, so to speak on technology that would require an agent who is more patient and who talks slower versus myself. When I call into a care center, I'm all about efficiency. I want you to answer my question. I don't want to listen even to your goodbye. Like I got it solved. Thank you. But I don't want to hear if you have another thing you want to call, like at some points in time I do, but usually 
I want to get in and get out, get my job done. So those profiles that we create around the types of, of customers and what they're after and what they need from the organization should vary. We call that a needs-based segmentation. Um, and in some ways you can get to a really lower level of even knowing when that customer called in, if they're already a customer, beginning to make that part of their profile. You know, what kind of service do they want? Um, what type of uh, interaction is best for them? What do they prefer? Um, I think that's, that's an important part of where you are. That makes a lot of sense. It, I'm almost picturing a matrix where, you know, the, let's say the you know, sideways part of the matrix um, is the customer's like static personality. Like what is their buyer personality? How do they like to be a customer and interact with you as a contact center? And you could have on the way right, uh, mushy-feely, lovey-dovey, let's talk and do rapport and tell them, ask me about my kids and let's do that. And the yeah. way left is like, you know, answer, done. And then I can imagine then the vertical part of the matrix could be something along the lines of um, where are they on the same sort of mushy to serious scale, but based on the issue. Because um, I can imagine that some folks, you know, how you, uh, the sort, sort of service you want depends both on who you are and what you're, you're calling about. Um, so context. I just made that up on the exact context. No, it's context. It's, um, and I think people that to your point about how do you get there? Like you can't automate that. Like it's a human being. You're trying to put a human being in a box. However, I think there are definitely some ways to get to that understanding in a little bit different way. It could be the first question you ask them, you know, or how's your day going? If they say, oh my gosh, I'm so busy. You're like, okay, this person probably wants to get off the phone. So in the conversation, even you can begin to kind of tag that and train people to look for where they are. Um, another way to do that is what I call emotional conversion. So you get somebody on the phone who's very ramped up and very anxious and maybe even angry. Um, the ability for you to understand and empathize with that anger and transition them, convert them to a different emotional state will also change their feeling. If you take them from a negative emotion to a positive, that creates connection to the organization. So I'll give you another example at, um, at Cisco Foods. Um, we did a needs-based segmentation. So not all customers are created equal. If you think about restaurant owners, they're all different. Um, and they fell into categories of the bar owner who just needs food to make sure people aren't walking out of his bar drunk. Um, so he has to serve food versus the chef who owns a restaurant because he loves the presentation and he buys the best quality product and everything in between. You know, I just wanna, I just wanna run my restaurant versus I need a lot of help. And so that needs-based segmentation helped us adapt to the type of person we were sending out as a salesperson, the knowledge they had, the type of service they wanted, whether they were gonna place their order online or call it in, all of those things became part of that profile or archetype that we were able to then say, oh, by asking them a few questions, we can get to this archetype and we know they typically like X, Y, and Z and give them the right service level, the right person to interact with and the right channel. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think is so challenging about any contact center role is the second you pick up the phone, you know nothing. And yes, you know the CRM data or the customer data, but um, at you, you have 40 or 50 interactions every single day, maybe more. Um, so you're not you know, taking a minute and visualizing who is this customer, what do they need? And you kind of have to constantly reset all throughout your day. Is there a process that you can apply 
um, you mentioned, you know, a question of how are you doing? Uh, you know, just how are you done? Uh, could be a good way to get that initial gauge. Are there a couple of other questions or steps that, that you could apply that would allow you to on the fly f- segment that customer in a handful of useful buckets? Well, I, one of them that I love is um, saying, you know, I'm, I'm calling, thanks for calling in today. Um, I'd really like to hear the story about why you're calling in. Because storytelling can be so powerful. It's not just, um, I need to, like I was going to the last call I made, uh, I had to call the IRS. <laughs> and, uh, and lo and behold, I, I got right through and the person was delightful, but it was, it was more about, you know, she didn't ask me, you know, what do you need? Or go through the IVR, you know, develop the IVR. I, I need to reset my pin to file my taxes, whatever. She said, you know, tell me the story about why you're calling today. And I think that, that really opens up to me. I'm going to share with you how I got here. Mm-hmm. And by doing that discovery, I think that provides you with a lot more information to understand that context and deal appropriately with, oh, we were trying to do that. By the way, did you know that that's actually online versus can you just reset my pin versus I tried to do this online. I had one before I got the letter from you, but can't find it. I need to redo it. Tells her a lot about the fact that maybe I didn't keep it safe or there was a way to do it online. I, I, just exploring with that person, doing that discovery um, is a way to get more context and understanding of who they are. Which, as you said, then you can put into the CRM about this person's really tech savvy and whatever is it wants to you know get to the get to the resolution or wants to help problem solve or um, whatever those things are. But I think that's an example of a way to dig in a little bit. When you ask that question, Diane, I, I put myself in the perspective of the agent. I know. Uh, tell me the story of why you're calling. And the first emotion I felt was like, "Oh, great! I'm gonna get all this good info." And the second emotion I felt was like, oh, geez, I could totally lose control of this call. You could, you could, you could. But we just talked about it. The trade-off to that of connecting on that human level. If you think about the cavemen who sat around, all they did was tell stories, right? That was, that was the way that they connected, that they communicated with each other. And they made it real and emotional because there's nothing like listening to somebody for that place where you have something in common, you know, right? Like I was talking to somebody the other day and I, uh, I said, oh, I see you have a picture of a kangaroo hanging back behind you. Um, I said, I was an exchange student to Australia in high school. And she said, oh my God, so was I. And we like, we're literally within two years of each other going over. So you look for those connections you can make because that's the memory that we evoke and the memory that they're going to attach to the brand. So. I think back to your question about how do you give people time to have that human connection that's going to create that value for the organization. And that seems fuzzy. We know that it pays off. We know it pays off. People will talk about those experiences. They'll remember and they'll come back again and again. And they'll tell their friends. When you think about the sort of skills that you need there um, to be able to be able to identify those commonalities and the right questions to ask and what kind of person you're talking to. Uh, there's almost two components that come to mind. First is the skill of like, can you do it? Mm-hmm. And the second is, does your organization have a culture that empowers and enable use, ena- enables you to do it? Um, right. So if you're 
a CX organization and you say, I kind of like the style of conversation that Diane is talking about. And I see, you know, how that flows through and benefits the organization like referrals and, um, and, you know, more loyal customers and all that. Um, what is the first step you take? I imagine it has to be something along the lines of culture and leadership. Well, I think culture and leadership are always, you know, so they're so out there. It's like, yes, everybody says we need to change the culture. It's like, can you tell me exactly what it is you're looking for? Um, can you define and describe to me what you want people to do differently? And that's, ex that's exactly when I ask that question, people go, you know, we've never really defined what that is, but we know we want it to change. It's like, well, people don't know where to run toward if you're telling them you, you want them to do something differently. So describing in the habit, which is the culture of the organization, those kind of unwritten habits that people have and how they interact. Um, in that unwritten habit, you can change that habit by trying out for, let's say for a care center person, spend the morning asking in the story question, spend the afternoon just answering the phone like you normally do, and then get the feedback and figure out what was different about that for you. How did the customer react differently? How did it resolve itself? Um, did we you can track those customers too, right? Did they, did they come back? Did they buy more? Because you know who they are. So I think there's a lot of experimentation that comes into play. But back to your point, I, I think if you don't identify those things you want to have change and the behaviors that you're looking for and then train, educate to that, I, I don't think it goes anywhere. Because people can say all day long, we need to be more customer-centric. And you're like, I don't know what that means to me mm -hmm. in my role. Um, so being very definitive about uh, the behavior and then trying it out and seeing the difference between A and B. Just try something out and measure it and see how people feel and see how the person who you talk to, like do a survey afterwards or call some of those customers back and how was your experience versus when you do it in the afternoon with the rote, the rote voice, I call it. The person they pick up the phone and like they have no intonation in their voice. They're just there on the phone. You think you're talking to a bot. And it's a real human being. Doesn't fly anymore. <laughs> not, not at all. No. Diane, I was talking to a contact center leader uh, maybe a month ago or so. And I said, you know, what if you turned your uh, contact center into an experimentation center? Like, wouldn't it be cool? You, you know, the sales and marketing world, or the marketing world has been A-B testing since the Sears catalog in the 1800s. But the customer care world and the sales world haven't been testing anything. And I said that, and he, and he said, uh, Mark, I get your point, but you definitely shouldn't call it an experimentation center. The last thing you want to do is experiment with our customer experience. Boy, does that sound risky. Um, and I, and I, I kind of uh, you know, blushed a little bit and was like, geez, uh, you know, oof, I hope I didn't you know, step on toes there. But, <laughs> but what, what do you think, Diane? Like, how do we bring some form of experimentation to the contact center um, in a way that uh, continues to deliver a reliable experience um, that isn't you know, um, you know, risking the house, but at the same time is allowing the contact center to not be static and be able to adapt and grow and, and change just like other parts of the organizations tend to do. Yeah, I, I think your, your point about being an engagement center, I think if you think about care or customer support, that's not really engagement. You can give somebody an answer to their question, but that doesn't mean it's going to drive that deeper emotional connection we talked about. 
Um, I believe that there are many ways and many individuals within a care center team that would love to experiment and feel valued and have input into those ideas. So one of the things we did with the medical device company is we had the care center team. The first part of what they did was we had them come up with ideas that they wanted to try out. We obviously ran them through the whole, what's this gonna impact and what's it look like? But because it's their idea, it holds them accountable and they want success. So they're more all about let's measure and let's figure out how it's going, right? So involving them in that, because I think that's part of the risk of having people do something different. They're like, why am I doing this? It, it doesn't quite capture as much as it should. The other piece is bringing them also into um, what I would call the, uh, why is the call coming in in the first place? So it's probably not more of an engagement there, but it's an engagement for those, uh, those folks who are really ending up with all the broken experiences to be a part of ideation elsewhere in the organization because they know what's going on. They know where all the pieces are, they know exactly what's broken. So bringing them to those ideas because then as they think about going back to their organizations, they can shift and say, you know what I discovered talking to the product team? This is more about the content. This is about what's on our website that's confusing. They're gonna fix that. So if they're calling in for that in the meantime, how can we explore what's needed and what type of content? Hey, you know, I saw you went to the website before you called, what was missing there? And so they're actually feeding back to the organization that information. So experimentation doesn't have to be where they are. It can be more about testing and exploring with the customer to get ideas from them, kind of co-creation, um, both internally and with the customer at the same time. That is fantastic. I think a lot of organizations um, almost, uh, when they're thinking about where ideas should come from, they skip over the agent level. So they say ideas come from the managers and then ideas come from the customer. But, but they, there's not this concept of uh, that you have a contact center workforce um, and I always think about, you know, people building the pyramids, you know, somewhere, I think between 20 to 40,000, uh, you know, Egyptians built the pyramids and, you know, people estimate. Um, so 20 to 40,000 people built the pyramids. Think about all of that collective brain power that each person was having their own thoughts and their own little ways they learned to do things. And that is happening right now in the contact center, but no one is asking them what they think. And- it's yeah. It's the first place I go. Really? If, I, if I'm going to work at an organization, the first place I'll go, um, in addition to doing like, where's all your information about customers and what, what are you doing right now? Like projects in flight. I'll go sit with the care team and talk to them about what they see and what they're, before I even look at the data. Because they can tell me right away, here's the things we know are broken. They just don't have a seat at the table to, you know, that's even the, the lead doesn't have a seat at the table to go in and, cause I think they always feel like they're gonna go in and point fingers and go, go fix your stuff. Um, not the case. I think they're discovering things. They just don't have a systematic way to do that. So we create that. We help understand, you know, what if we can reduce, you know, not only can we reduce calls to the care center, that's a, that's a byproduct. The real opportunity is you're forcing almost a customer to put extra effort and time into something that they shouldn't have to be dealing with, right? If you built the product right and you have the right documentation, why should they have to call in four times to get it installed? Not good, right? That's, 
So we're creating these more proactive design it right in the first place and use that. I always think of it as a reverse pyramid. I think about the customers out there and that first line of defense is really the care team. And that should trickle down to the executives and telling, telling them, here's what's happening in the marketplace. And here's the things our customers are seeing. Not the executive thinks he knows what's happening. He, he puts it down and tries to make changes. So it, it flip it on its head a little bit. It's also so much more fulfilling as an agent when you're given the space to have ideas, share ideas, and have those ideas go someplace that makes the organization better. Starbucks does that with their, um, they had a program, My Starbucks Idea, they ran it for about five years. They had 270,000 ideas. And one of those was the little stick that goes in the cup Mm -hmm. that came from my customer. But the happy hour time, um, there's lots of lots of things that you see at Starbucks does today that came from their employees. And it's an innovation management system. That's all they really implemented. They had the contributors uh, vote things up and then implemented, I don't know how many, it's 550, I think, out of the 270,000 ideas. It's incredible. incredible. It's incredible. And I, I think it's Microsoft is known for doing a global competition every year where I, th- I think it's um, every country that Microsoft is in, um, uh, they compete within the country and it's something like the top three teams in each country then propose their idea and right. the top 10 you know, are directly presented to, I guess not Bill Gates anymore, but uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, Sundar Pikai. Um, and, uh, and how cool is that? How yeah. cool is that? Yeah, to bring it in. And you never know, to your point about care teams, um, we had a, a, a guy named Jared who was in one of our um, design thinking um, workshops that we did for one client because we wanted to bring people in from different parts of the organization. So he came in from the care team. And during this design session, we were actually doing prototyping and he threw the exploration and the ideation and in the prototyping, when he presented his idea, everybody was like, all over it. And so we took his idea to the, to the leadership and said, we think everybody really weighed in on this and thought this was of all those things. And they actually ended up implementing this app that he had built in a prototyping. So you don't know where that brilliance lies in your organization. If you don't give everybody the chance to contribute and share what they know about the customer and how they can work around um, issues or design something that's going to better meet their needs. Now, now I, I have a belief that um, most people are um, much more capable than they're given credit for, often by others, and that they also give themselves credit for. Um, and I also think that in the contact center space, we're going to see, um, you know, in order to deliver on the sort of vision that you and I are talking about, a really talented tier of agent is needs to needs to be there. And I think people are. Uh, you know, th- when you look at all like the workforce trends, you, you, you see agent pay going up, you see competitiveness going up. Now that agents can work remote, you see agents kind of getting more selective and what sort of environments they go to. Right. Uh, you know, what do you think the agent talent ecosystem is, is going to look like over the next few years? Um, we'll be moving. I think it's already happening in all the um, things that I read, but the, the, mundane task, I'm going to say, 
are going to be taken care of by chatbots and AI and machine learning and some of those others where people will self-serve. And we've got a digital push going on. It's getting more successful than it has been for many organizations. So those are gonna take some of those pieces off. So I think it's really these Uber agents and highly qualified, highly engaging, back to our, our first conversation, um, highly engaged, engaging um, associates who can really be a part and represent the brand. Because I don't think people think about the agent being that brand. Think about it. There's times when I think a, a customer can go through an entire um, interaction with an organization and never talk to a human being. So when they get to that point where they have a need or they want to talk about something differently, you're going to need somebody who can really engage that customer. It's your one chance to connect as a human. Um, so that's what I think about with the type of people that you hire and the emotionally intelligent people you hire <laughs> and, and how they communicate as a human, how they really make a connection. And we see a lot of that happening on the hiring platforms now, yeah. hiring platforms, hiring um, strategies now that there's just a different approach to the who they want to bring in yeah um it, it's interesting i think maybe it was like two or three years ago maybe a little more um college education started getting really popular saying we want you know uh, and particularly in uh, uh latin american countries and as we had this nearshore uh outsourcing folks would say oh our folks have college degrees and it seems like when i'm looking through job descriptions and what people are touting that actually over the last couple of years, hasn't been as much of a criterion. It's been more about the qualities of the individual rather than their particular um, education status or anything like that. I think that's going to be true for many professions these days. Um, I don't know that. I think. I think when I meet people who are super engaged, there's there's always this continual curiosity. And you can learn a lot through curiosity. It doesn't have to be formally taught. Um, you can be a self learner, um, focused on the things that you want to learn, which we can all think back to our college degrees. There's a lot of classes like, I don't remember diddly about biology, nothing, <laughs> nothing. I don't remember anything. Why spend my time doing that when I'm not curious about it and it's not really going to benefit me? Like, why do we require that? Um, I get you when people have liberal arts, but come on. So I, I think to your point, not only is that going to shift in what they require, but I think um, universities are starting to really look at what they're developing and what they're requiring as part of who people are these days and what they're looking for and that focus they want to have. Yeah. And with the pandemic, how interesting is it that so much self-learning went on with YouTube and masterclass and everyone's stuck inside their home and they say, well, I've got nothing to do besides work. I can't go outside. Maybe I go learn something. It's, it's ironic because they, I think they said 26% of the, the restaurant workers didn't go back to their, their roles, not just because they didn't want to their own unemployment, but because they had actually trained up and realized how hard that work was. And they trained up 26% of the entire restaurant workforce. I, don't quote me on that, but that was, I think it's close to that. So wow. that's a true indication that uh, people just got their eyes open like that, that ability to step back and be introspective about what you want and what you enjoy doing. That's really been a big push this year. Yeah. I'm seeing all these articles on LinkedIn uh, calling it the great resignation. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's, yeah. Wow. That's pretty, wow. That's pretty impactful to think about what you just yeah. said. 
yeah. a little bit of a hyperbole probably, but still very interesting nonetheless. I think so too. I think so too. So then Diane, if we extrapolate this out uh, to 2030, all, you know, all of these trends that we're seeing, what do you think the contact center of 2030 looks like? Wow, that's a tough choice. I don't have a crystal ball. Wait a minute, I do. <laughs> this is my crystal ball right here. Ah, so <laughs> so look deeply look into, into it. it. <laughs> deeply into this crystal ball. Yeah. Um, I think it will be much more targeted. I think the segments of who serves who and what capacity will change dynamically. Um, that there will be experts, a lot more expertise in certain issues or fields, that it will be more of that engagement piece we talked about, that it is truly about helping them achieve the value out of the product or service and it is about resolving issues. So I think there's gonna be a much more proactive way of doing that. I don't believe that everybody says that the call centers, you're not gonna ever be able to get a human being anymore. As a matter of fact, I think the pendulum is swinging the other way that these Uber agents hiring the right people for the right role for the calls that do come in will dynamically shift the way that they get compensated to your point, that they get scored, that what quality looks like. I think all of that is gonna change because it's not gonna be the same fix it approach that we've had for years and years. Wonderful. Uh, Diane, thank you so much. If people want to connect with you or learn more about um, what you do, you know, how can they find you? Oh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. You just have to spell the name differently. It's M-A-G-E-R-S. <laughs> but yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear more about what you're doing and even innovative ideas. I think you know, this conversation has been what's going to happen. And I think if people can contribute on your website or on LinkedIn as to some things that they're doing, I think let's carry on the conversation. Oh, fantastic. Diane, thank you so much for your time today. This was uh, totally wonderful. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. You too. Talk soon. Okay.